0: in the opening chapter of first Thessalonians as we are a people who are waiting for expectantly the return of our king we have our eyes fixed on him we're living for him because we know that that's what it's all about he's what it's all about and we fail to become a church that looks like what we just read when we take our eyes off of him and we start putting our eyes on all kinds of other things that distract us and discourage us right you know that in your own personal lives, your own walk with the Lord. You, 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 you stumble, you take your eye off the ball, and things begin to just sort of go flat. So my prayer is that as we open up First Thessalonians, that God would use this to fix our eyes back on, not just on Jesus, but on the hopeful expectancy that he is coming back. That we know the end of the book. We know the end of the story. We have something to live for. And it will shape our lives into becoming a church that, I pray, we, people will be able to say that about us. So that's where we're going with, uh, with this, this series. And as we, as we open up uh, the series, and, and as Paul opens up the letter here to the Thessalonian church, you'll see that a, a huge part of the emphasis for him is, is praying to God about these things. Trusting God, knowing that only God can produce in us this kind of living, this kind of testimony, this kind of love for him and for one another. So I want to direct our attention to the first three verses here again. Uh, and I've titled the message this morning, How to Pray for the Church in 2018. That's our arbitrary. We just started a new year, right? How, how should we be praying for the church this year? But not just this year, always. What what should we always be doing as, as God's people and praying for him producing in us what we've just read and will continue to read. Look again at verses 1 to 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God, he says. He, he says, he's talking about his prayers, right? And, and he's, he's giving prayers of thanksgiving to God, which recognize what? This is not a hard question. When you say thank you to someone, you're recognizing that what you're thankful for is what they've provided, right? What they've given. So you get this clear sense here that Paul's, Paul's acknowledging that all these things that we're about to read and these specific things that he mentions here about their works of faith, about their labor of love, about the steadfastness of hope. That's all from God. Thank you to God for producing that in them, right? So we, we sort of see him looking back and saying these things exist in you. So I'm praising God and thanking God for that. But, but, but what's clear is, is that if we recognize that looking back, we can see God produced that, then looking forward, we have to continue to do what? Depend on him to produce it in increasing measure, right? That's kind of the idea that I wanted to get at here. Paul's looking backwards and saying, thank you, God, for producing these things in your people. But but I'm confident that in Paul's praying, he's he's recognizing that we have to keep praying for these things. In order for God to continue to produce them in his people right so I want to talk about that as uh, uh, as we walk through these three verses I've got four points here that are really going to be focused more on how we ought to continue to be praying for God to keep producing or maybe to begin producing in us these things the works of faith the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope first thing I want to notice though is this prayer for the whole church should be our constant priority Do you see that in verse 2? We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The central idea of this sentence, of course, is about prayer. He's thanking God. He's mentioning them in prayers. And he's going to get into the content of those prayers in the next sentence in verse 3. But it's important here to pause and recognize three important parts of this sentence that I think give us some really rich instruction in praying for the church. And I'll work backwards through the sentence in order to pull them out. The first thing to notice is the adverb constantly. Paul, Savannah and Timothy are saying, we're constantly praying for the church. We're constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And they, in fact, encourage the church to do the same. If you flip over a page and you look at the end of the book in chapter five, verse 16, He says rejoice always and pray without ceasing to them he wants them to do the same thing constant prayer pray without ceasing what does that mean what does it mean to pray constantly or without ceasing i think of three things the first one is sort of the obvious one it's that it means well you pray often right we're we're to be praying regularly Uh, the idea here is is that we we're in relationship with a father who who wants to hear from us? I, I've got three kids, uh, and all three of my kids are very different. And one of the ways in which the, that difference emerges, we've talked about this recently, sort of joked about it as a family recently, is in, is in the car. When, I, when I'm when i driving my kids someplace, it's just me and one of them, or it's just my wife and one of them, this is what we've joked about, it's very clear the differences between our kids. One of them gets in the car and just wants to tell you all about their day. This happened, that happened, that. and you can be driving for like a 20-minute, 30-minute drive home and realize that the whole time, this one child has spoken the entire ride home, right? And then I have another child who's the exact opposite of that, right? I pick this child up and there might be a like, hey, how was your day? Fine. And then we can drive for 30 minutes and neither one of us say a word. And the thing is, it's okay. It's cool. Like, it, it's not weird. It's just sort of like, that's who they are, right? Uh, and I'm kind of that way too. So we get each other, right? But, but, but I, but I say that recognizing that like, there's, there's a difference sometimes in the way that we relate to our, our, our fathers, our mothers, our, our parents. But when it comes to God, what he's saying here, what Paul is saying here is God wants a relationship kind of like the first kid I described. God doesn't want us to sit in the car with him for 30 minutes and not say anything. That's not who he is. And he doesn't want that to be who we are in terms of our relationship to him. He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear about our day. He wants to hear what's on our hearts. He wants to hear what's on our minds. He wants us to make our requests known to him. He wants us to acknowledge him in everything. Constantly aware, he's he's there. He's sitting next to us in the car. That's what that's what Paul's getting at here. We say that that's the way we pray for you. We're constantly acknowledging God's presence, and you're constantly on our minds, and we're just interacting all the time. And he's encouraging us to pray in the same way. So that's the first thing. Is the is this constantly. The second part of the sentence that sticks out is that Paul and the others told the church, We pray for all of you. Which again has sort of an obvious meaning. They're lifting up the request for the whole church, but but I think what he probably means here is that they pray for the church members by name. We're not just praying for the church, but we're praying for every one of you by name, which is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Ever have somebody come up to you and 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 tell you specifically that they've been praying for you that day or that week? Um, they're asking you specifically about what how they can be praying for you because they and they tell you, like, I'm I'm gonna be praying specifically for this, for you this week. That's a there's a tremendous encouragement that comes from knowing that you're being prayed for. And that's what Paul and the others are doing here with the church. They're saying, look, we're. We're lifting up the whole body. We understand that the whole thing is important. Every member is a part of the body of Christ and needs to be prayed for in this way. You know, to the extent that it's possible, and I say in a church of our size, it's entirely possible, I think that's a really important habit to form. To be praying for each other, specifically, to know each other well enough to be able to do that. And I think there's a, a couple of important reasons, maybe actually several important reasons why it's, it's, it's important to form a habit for actually being able to pray specifically for one another. The first one is this, it increases our love for one another, right? When, when you're praying for somebody, you're pursuing them you're you're in, in, inherently you have to sort of know them you and you have to not only know them but to be praying for them is to is to want what's best for them to ask God's blessing on them To to ask for their needs to be met it's there's something that if I'm praying for you I'm I'm partnering with you and saying God work in this person's life love this person bless this person I I can't dislike you and continually be praying for you right so it increases our love for one another. It, it requires us to pursue and to know one another. I can't be praying for you individually if I, I don't know what to pray for. So I've got to ask. And it, it encourages relationship. It encourages brotherhood and sisterhood in the church. It also encourages the sharing of prayer requests. Not just that I'm asking you, but if, if we're, a, if we're a people who know that this is a, this is a family that actually bears one another's burdens and is praying for one another, it's going to encourage me to let you know how to pray for me without you even having to ask necessarily. I'm I'm more willing to come and say, I need prayer in this regard because I know, brothers and sisters, you're the people who will do that for me. So it encourages the sharing of prayer requests. And, and then the last thing I'd say is it also it alerts us to know if someone is slipping off the radar in active participation in the community of faith. If you're constantly praying for your brothers and sisters, you know that that, that saying "out of sight, out of mind," right? Well, if, if you're if you're looking at a list of people and you're praying for them, first of all, they're 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 not out of sight; they're in your mind. But you might recognize, I, but I haven't seen their face. I need to reach out to them. I need to find out how they're doing. I need to pursue them. I you know, right? It it sort of encourages that awareness of like, hey. Is somebody hurting? Is somebody missing? Is somebody floating out there? How can I pray for them if I'm not seeing them? So how do we foster a habit like that? Well, I can think of two simple things. The first one is this, just to ask you are, you, are you reaching out? Are you getting to know people in the body? Can I just point out something that, uh, that I notice? because I stand up here on on a weekly basis so I get to see a perspective most of you see the back of each other's heads I get to see your faces um something I notice is that some of you move around a lot from Sunday to Sunday and some of you don't all right now I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, necessarily pick on you for not moving around all right uh, I'm not totally singling you out but I will say this it limits you a little bit doesn't it when when you move around a little bit, when everybody's kind of in that habit of not saying, look, this seat should have my name uh, engraved on it, but rather, how can I make sure that I'm continually being with the whole body? It, It changes something about your awareness of knowing, loving, caring, hearing from one another, right? So there's no clicks in the body of Christ. There shouldn't be. Uh, and that's an important thing. So just to ask you the question, do you seek others out? And, and then secondly, do you have a list of the church membership? Those of you who are church members. Right? We print those out periodically. You know, We could probably do a better job of communicating that. In fact, I'm going to make it a priority this week that if you're a member, you're going to get an, the most updated list emailed to you of the church membership. But here's a great practice for you. Pray through it. So that everyone is being loved and cared for and prayed for this is clearly what paul and timothy and sylvanas are saying we're praying for all of you and then finally verse 2 opens with we pray which is significant because there's three of them who are who are writing this right and who are those three well they're in this context they're leaders of the church they're they're elders of the church um and I think that's an important thing. So I'm, I'm going to speak specifically to those of you who are in shepherding roles here in the body. I think there's a specific call here, a specific example here, that as elders or deacons in the body, maybe you're a community group leader or a Bible study leader, maybe you're a ministry volunteer, and you've you've kind of got this position of of having a shepherding role, a leadership role over a smaller group of people or the whole thing. Here's some men who have that role who are saying this is something that we know is our responsibility it's our privilege and it's our responsibility we're praying for you and it's interesting to note a little bit later on in the book actually in chapter 5 again verse 20 that it goes both ways there Paul says and you pray for the leaders So everybody should be praying for one another, but, but I think there's this specific contextual emphasis here that should encourage, especially those of us who are in leadership position. And I will specifically single out the elders. Praying for the body is not an option. It's a privilege and a responsibility. So what a, what a great setup sentence right there, right? Pray constantly, pray for everybody. There's, Leaders be praying for the people. People be praying for the leaders. And then he finally gets into the content of the prayers. Let's look at those things. There's three kinds of spiritual fruit in the church that Paul is specifically thanking God for and praying for. And it is this work of faith, this labor of love, and this steadfastness of hope. When I say Faith, love, and hope. Or maybe you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 and you're hearing faith, hope, and love. You go, boy, those things—those seem to come up a lot in Scripture, those three things. Well, they do actually come up a lot in Scripture. Faith, hope, and love. Uh, we call those things, the, some of us can call those things the, the Pauline triad. You see Paul talk about them often. Faith, hope, and love. Uh, and here, here's a great example of that. These are sort of like the three pillars of, of, of the church, three pillars of the Christian faith. And these are the things that he's thanking God for in the people. And we're going to explore them a little bit and, and get an idea of, of how exactly they work out in the church. The first thing he says is we, we should pray for works of faith. We should thank God for works of faith, which is to say this, true faith produces righteous deeds. Works of faith make sense. They go hand in hand because true faith ought to produce good work, righteous deeds. It doesn't mean, of course, that good works produce righteousness. We know that. Paul's very clear about that. We're, we're saved by faith. We're justified by faith, not by merit. But at the same time, it's really clear in, in, in the New Testament that that faith is authenticated by the way that we live. There's fruit. And the fruit of our faith is good work it's often called that we're meant to produce those things when the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us by faith what what does that mean what do you think of when I say doing good works My, my guess is that for most of us we think of that it means being good which is a fair thing to say right but 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 by that I mean this that that it's about avoiding sin and pursuing holiness in my life uh maybe maybe we think of like the 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 uh Galatians 5 where you've got the works of the flesh contrasted with the the fruit of the spirit and we can think about those things on a very individual level and 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 sort of evaluate am i am i doing good work by avoiding the flesh and pursuing the fruit of the spirit let me read those to you by the way just to put them in your mind the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul says in in Galatians, I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we go, okay, I'm going to avoid those things. And then the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Pursue that, right? Uh, be good so let me let me say this um that's that's good thinking that's biblical thinking for christians turning away from the flesh and walking in the spirit is paramount however i think it's important for us to uh talk about especially as modern people who are so individualistic so so much of our faith can be so personalized uh, that there's far more to the idea of biblical good work than just individual personal holiness. In, in ancient Jewish thought, which Paul was a, a byproduct of, he's a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee, right? Uh, an ancient Jewish community the, the, this, this idea of good works included things like giving to the poor, visiting the sick, providing hospitality to strangers, Comforting those who are downtrodden, comforting the afflicted, um, other other activities that were that were very others focused, and really often had a, a specific emphasis on those who were poor or needy. So when Paul's speaking of good works, the the Jewish audience is is hearing those kinds of things very clearly. Now Paul's not just talking to a Jewish audience here, though he's also talking to Macedonian, which is Greek-influenced audience, and, and for the Greeks, they had some things that, that this idea of good works uh, conveyed to them, and, and for them it was a little bit broader. You could do good works on behalf of family or friends or community or even the state, and so for the Greek, this idea of good work, it, it, it sort of boiled down to um, are, you, are you acting in such a way that, that shows no partiality? Are you generally having good character? Okay? So again, Paul's writing into a context that would sort of understand all these things. I think Paul is is meaning all of these things. It's not just about personal holiness, but it's very much about that. But it also entails loving others, giving to others, serving others, contributing to society. So if that's what it means to... Display the work of faith to be all of that. Here's the maybe the hard question: Is any of that truly possible to sustainably live out apart from the grace of God? Just kind of think about your. Maybe look back on 2017. If someone to say like, let's let's evaluate sort of the way that your life bled out. Let's, let's see, let's evaluate your character and the way that you, you loved and served others and, and, your personal holiness. Would, would we be able to say, yeah, I was able to really sustain that in my own power. I was just a doggone good person. I, apart from the grace of God, I think we could all readily admit it's r- impossible to sustain that. And our current moral, ethical, and political discourse, like on Twitter, <laughs> would prove that out, right? Um, we don't even know how to agree on where to draw the lines of what's good and bad. But when we do do that, I think we often find that it's easy for us to sort of point out when other people have crossed those lines, right? We've gotten really good at that lately, right? Shaming people, calling them out like, oh, that's a bad person, um, but here's the here's the thing if, if if we're entailing a biblical idea of good work then aren't we also called to love our enemy i mean i can label my enemy but am i loving him or her we can point out the character flaws in others but fail to maintain our own good character in the way that we do it right I can spot a lack of self-control. That's a, that's a virtue. I can, I can spot it out there, but am I maintaining it in here as I'm calling it out? Am I exercising self-control or gentleness or patience or kindness or goodness? It's impossible really, apart from the grace of God and the fruit of the Spirit to live out the kind of good work and character that Paul's referring here to. By the way, one of my, one of my favorite quotes uh was actually from a former president george bush who said this this is so this is so man it just sort of hits right on the nose kind of who we are as a society he says too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions so in other words apart from the grace of god we're a bunch of hypocrites right we're guilty of hypocrisy um it's impossible to say in good work and good character. So what do we need? We need the power of God. We, we, need, we need the help of the Spirit. We need the regenerating work of Christ in our lives and the, and the, and the continual fullness of Christ fleshed out and lived out in order, to, in order to have any hope that other people would be able to point their finger at us and consistently say, there's Christ. There's an example of what Jesus is like. To consistently point to a church and say they're a constant display of the goodness and glory of god and paul's paul's gonna look i'm i'm thanking god that he is producing that in you you could never produce that on your own that's clearly a work of god but at the same time he's praying for it to continue so if we want to be a people whose faith is authenticated by good works we have to depend on the power of God continually, in order to produce that in us. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see our church? Honestly, wouldn't it be just be awesome to be known as a church family who excels not just in personal holiness, although that would be awesome too. But 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 beyond that, into in giving to the poor and visiting the sick and providing hospitality to strangers, to being a people who comfort the downtrodden and the afflicted. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to be known as people of character in our society, in our city, in our neighborhood? Are you known for that? Are you known for that? Well, I thank God for the evidence of these things in many of your lives. I see a lot of that. But I know that there needs to be an increase And we need to be praying for that increase. We need to be asking God to produce what only God can produce. More works of faith, Lord. So as you consider how to pray for one another, put that at the top of your list. God, let our faith be evident in the things that we do. Let let our works of faith abound. That's the first thing. The second thing is then pray for a labor of love. Second part of verse 3 there, he says he's thanking God not just for their works of faith, but for their labor of love. And when we read that in the English, work and labor sound like they might mean the same thing. Right? Those are kind of interchangeable words. On Labor Day, we don't work. Right? Um, but in the Greek, the two words have different meanings. In the Greek, work refers to the actual thing done. That's the work of faith. The labor of love, the the word labor there refers to the effort that drives the work. Uh, The picture there is one of straining. It's one of of exhaustion, actually. It's sort of this, this toil and struggle motivated by love that carries forth the work. Okay. So he's not just thankful that they're doing things, but that the that what that what they're doing is being is being brought about by this straining, struggling effort, just grace-driven effort that's rooted in a deep love for God and a deep love for others. You know, authentic Christianity has always been marked by a love for God and a love for others. If you think about Jesus saying, being asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Well, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right in this and the second he says is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Clearly, love is the is the great motivation there. Love God, love others. It's it's an important thing. And in fact, this this Pauline triad I mentioned earlier, faith, hope, and love, if you go to First Corinthians thirteen, Paul says there. These three, faith, hope, love, remain, but he says the greatest of these is love. You ever wonder why, by the way, that's that's the greatest? They're all great, right? Why is love the greatest? Uh, I heard D.A. Carson talk about this a few months ago, and I thought was, he, had, he gave as good a description as any, which is simply to say this. Love is the one of those three things that God does. God doesn't have faith God doesn't have to hope. We have faith and we hope, but, but love is the thing that God is. And of the three of those things, it's the one that's eternal because hope will pass and faith will pass. Faith will become sight. Hope will be realized, but love will endure. So Paul says that love is the great motivation he also says in 1st Corinthians 13 that love never fails and if that's true and it is then I guess I would ask this so why do we need to pray for it why do we need to pray for love when love never fails well I, I thought about that this week and I think the answer is this because we've lost sight of what love really is what we think of when we think of love most often is we think love is a feeling and that does fail, by the way. Anybody ever been in love? Maybe when you're in like junior high or high school and that guy or girl, that new kid in class, they show up and you're just like, ah, and you see the stars. And, and, and then, and then what happens? It goes away, right? Even when you, when you find the love of your life, your spouse, if you've been married for any period of time, I've been married for 20 years now. I love my wife more than I loved her when we met, but, but the feeling is different. Fair? Love's not a feeling. What is love? It's a commitment. Right? It's a commitment. Feeling flows from commitment, by the way. It's not right to say love is void of feeling. But just like works flow from faith, feeling flows from commitment in love. So let me, let, me, uh, let me give you an example of, of how that can be understood. Um, I mentioned my kids earlier. I don't mean to pick on my kids this morning. These are, these are general, these are general, uh, illustrations, by the way. <clears throat> but, but for an example, let's say one of my kids, let's say I get a phone call in the middle of the night that one of my kids has been arrested for, for committing a crime, uh, doing something illegal or just doing something really stupid. Now, praise God, I haven't had that phone call yet. Uh, maybe some of you have and maybe maybe you could you could you could shed light on this, but here's my here 's my assumption my assumption is that in that moment i 'm not going to be feeling for them what I felt for them when they were babies, and I was holding them and 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 just like oh they 're precious, you know like they, when you have that you the little newborn you just everything in you is just the love just overwhelms you it 's just flow it 's like you can 't believe you can 't contain it right that feeling I doubt is there at two in the morning when it's the police department saying your kid did this (gasps) right the feeling might be just as strong but it's probably in the opposite direction (laughs) however however i'm gonna get in the car right i'm gonna go get them because i'm committed to them and no matter what they did no matter what they did, I am going to be there for them. And if if what they did is to the extent that there is a consequence that is unbearable, and if I could, I'm confident in that moment, I would say, give it to me, right? That Because cause again, love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. It's It's I'm committed to their best. I will do anything for my kids. Does that that begin to, you you relate to that, right? All right, now, now that's a labor of love. That's labor, that's striving, that's effort, that's toil, that's sacrificial, rooted in love. That begins to help you understand what Paul's getting at here. But here's the thing, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. If if we wanted to really take it to the extent that I think Paul's getting at here, it would look more like this. And this is the shocking thing. You know I would get in the car at two in the morning to go do that for my kids, but would the victim of their crime do that for them? The person that they wronged or injured, if they were somehow to get the call and say, we caught the guy, we caught the girl, we know we got them in prison here, You want to press charges, would they say, no, I'm going to come in the car and bail them out. I need to go get them. I committed to their best. That would be radical, right? If you can imagine the incredible kind of love that that would require, you can begin to understand the love of God that compels the Christian to love their neighbor. Because that's exactly what God did for us. That's what Romans 5 tells us, right? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God got in the car and came for us when, when, when the victim of our crime, if you will, was him. When the one wrong, the one sinned against was Him, He gets in the car, meaning that He comes in the form of flesh, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to set us free, committed to our best, because that's what it means to strive in love for another, even to the point of death on a cross. That's the Gospel, right? That's why we have to thank God and why we have to continually pray to God to continue to produce this kind of labor of love in us that would cause us to strain ourselves for the benefit of others. Every expression of love comes from God. It's not natural to us to strain that way for one another. But God is love. And this is the love that he demonstrated. And so if God produces that kind of love in us, it's going to do supernatural things in the way that that, that our efforts for others become radically different than what they were. I put in your bulletin, um, you know what, I, I don't know if I, oh, I brought it up here. I did. I put in your bulletin a prayer. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That would be appropriate for us to honor that, remembering his ministry. This is a prayer. (laughs) This is a prayer that he he gave that actually speaks exactly to this recognition of need for God's supernatural power in in order to love our neighbor like he's called us to. It's it's a recognition that we can't do that in our own strength. Let me read it for you as you look onto it thou eternal god out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being we humbly confess that we have not loved thee with our hearts souls and minds and we have not loved our neighbors as christ loved us we've all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by christ we often give in order to receive we love our friends we hate our enemies we go the first mile, but dare not travel the second. We forgive, but dare not forget. And so as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But thou, O God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do do your will. Give us the devotion to love your will. In the name and the spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Isn't isn't that the kind of prayer that we need to continually be giving for ourselves and for one another? God, we know we're a bunch of, we're a bunch of idiots who are selfish in our motivations. We don't love you. We don't love others the way we ought to. We know that that's our bent. God, change us. God, help us to be like Christ. Help us to know and do the will of God. That you've shown to us through your son right that's a prayer request that's always needed for the church how do you increase your love for your neighbor even the egrs as i like to call them that means extra grace required right some people are easy to love some people are pretty easy to love right? you you, you have the same interests. kind of I mean, it's not a big deal friend and then there's the people who who just you, they, oh, hmm. Whew, all right, Lord. You put them in the church? Okay. All right. EGRs. How do you love even that? How do you love everybody? I said it before pray for them. It's impossible to hate someone you're praying for it's impossible not to begin to well up with love for people you're praying for because when you're praying for people your their burdens become your burdens right and as we're as we're seeking the lord's favor and will and provision for them because we're bearing the burdens that they're bearing their successes and blessings become reasons for our rejoicing right their needs be become become needs that, that we're constantly carrying with them and 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 you know, you just, you can't not love people when you're praying for them. So pray for them. And you begin to love them as you love yourself, which is not hard to do. And you remember that at the end of the day, God loves me in the same way. I am the biggest EGR I know. God has loved me. How can I not love others the way that God has loved me? Again, wouldn't it be wonderful to see our church family excelling in sacrificial commitments to love one another, to carry each other's burdens, to, to strive to meet the needs of the body? That would, that would demonstrate a tremendously powerful witness of Christ in the world. It really would. And it would, it would be such a, a, a tremendous encouragement to us as the body of Christ. Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples, my followers, by your love for one another. Is that just radiating from who we are? And if not, wouldn't it be wonderful to see it happen? And again, I'll ask you that sort of that pointed pastoral application question. Are you known for those things? Did your actions in 2017 prove the labor of your love? Well, again, I thank God for evidences of that. I see it in His people. But I know there's, there's, there's room to improve, right? <laughs> I know that. And, and we ought to be praying for that. God, thank you for what you've done. God, don't stop there evermore. Increase our labor of love. How do you pray for one another? Pray that God would increase your labor of love for them and their labor of love for the rest of the body. And finally this, we should pray for steadfast hope in christ that's the end part of verse three he thanks god for steadfastness of hope in our lord jesus christ what is hope what is hope simply i think hope is this is this it's it's the confidence and by the way biblical hope is not um the way we often think of like, oh, I hope this happens. It's a confidence. It's, it's sort of sure hope. Peter talked about that last week. That, that at the, at the end of the day no, is this. It, I know how the story ends. I know Jesus wins. I know that when Ephesians says that that, that the will of God is to, is to reconcile all things in Christ Jesus in heaven and on earth, I know that it's going to happen. I had a friend, a couple of friends who were in Hawaii yesterday and woke up at 8 a.m. because their cell phone went off with the big alert. You guys hear about this? Yeah. Every cell phone in the state of Hawaii gets the buzz alert this is not a drill. Ballistic missile is on the way. Seek shelter. Could you imagine that, by the way? 38 minutes it took for them to come back and say, Oops, this is uh, this was a mistake. So for 38 minutes, everybody who had a cell phone in Hawaii or was in a city because the sirens all went off in the cities thought they were going to die. And I asked... This friend of mine on Facebook, I said, first of all, I have no words for what that must have been like. And and secondly, like, what did you do for 38 minutes? I, I think I used the word, how did you freak out for 38 minutes? And her response was, well, we were told basically we have 20 minutes to get someplace safe, and I just kept praying over in my head the promise of Philippians 4.7, which is that, that, that simple, very well-known verse about the peace of Christ, peace that passes understanding that guards our hearts and minds in, G- in Christ Jesus. So I just kept praying over and over that. And I thought, you know what? The difference between you and probably so many other people who were just panicked Was you have that that knowledge that when this missile drops in 20 minutes, the peace of Christ guards my heart and mind because I know I know what's gonna happen. If we die, I'm with him. That's hope. Right? That's hope. And 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 it's helpful to, to understand a bit of the context in Thessalonica here. Uh, I don't have time to do this, but if you go to Acts chapter 17, you can read how the, how the church formed, how the gospel came to, to Thessalonica. Basically, Paul goes there and, and he goes into the synagogue, which is his typical habit. If there was a synagogue in the city, he, he begins to preach the gospel there to show them that, that the, the, the Old Testament's promises of a Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus and, and, and people began to come to faith. Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ. Uh non-Jewish people are coming to faith, some prominent folks in the city, some prominent women in the city are coming to Christ. And what happens then is that the the Jews who didn't believe the testimony began to get jealous that their brethren were abandoning in their mind their religion for this new fangled gospel. And they go out and, and they and they begin to sort of rabble rouse and get the rest of the city to get fired up, that that the this Paul uh is turning the city upside down. And they get kicked out of the synagogue. There's this guy named Jason who's one of the, the new believers, and, and he's got a house, and he says, come in my house. And the church is meeting there, and, and this crowd goes to Jason's house, and they're like, where's this guy Paul? Get him out here. And Paul had already left. And so they take Jason out, and there's, there's like some thumping going on, and it was, it was a mess. Why did that happen? Well, one of the charges that they made was that they said that you're preaching that there's another king. This Jesus is, a, is another king rather than Caesar. And Thessalonica was a, was a Roman city. That's the same charge that was given against Jesus, right? Right? Who do you say you are? Are you the king of the Jews? And and when the and the crowd was crying, crucify him, they're saying he's he's claiming to be a, a king. There's no king but Caesar. It's the same kind of charge. But in, in Thessalonica, the charge was a little bit more serious. You have to understand some of the history about the region, but but you know, Thessalonica was a part of Macedonia. You heard of Alexander the Great? So, so like his big empire uh encompassed that area, and then when the Romans came up and and there was conflict there and and back and forth and finally the romans kind of took over there there was always this under kind of under uh current of rebellion against rome like maybe the macedonian empire maybe alexander the great's legacy was going to someday rise up again um so when there's any talk about a rival king to caesar people get really nervous like oh no here it comes Rome's going to come down and really put, the, put, put their thumb on us. We can't have anybody talking about other kings. Shh, 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 it's Caesar, it's Caesar. That's what was happening. So, from right from the beginning, you've got this church, this group of believers who have a worldview that recognizes you know what, there is a king, Jesus. And his kingdom is far greater than the Roman Empire. And, and, and our sights are set on knowing that, that this is the everlasting kingdom. This is the true throne. And yet they're living in a society that with any whiff of that could, could cause tremendous harm to them. What do you need when you're constantly living under that threat of persecution? You need to know that that kingdom you're talking about is a certainty. You need hope. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus and know that no matter what happens here, and this is dangerous, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And steadfast hope involves fixing our eyes on Christ. Jesus promises in Matthew 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved and there will always be on this side of heaven many reasons to fear to to get our eyes off of the ball to start worrying about all the different things that could potentially threaten us there's 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 no end to reasons to despair and to give up but for christians listen christians we have this incredible blessing to cling to we know how the story ends we know how it ends Speaking of Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King Day, I was watching a documentary on him this week and I was reminded of the great speech that he gave on April 3rd, 1968. He was assassinated on April 4th. The night before his assassination, he was, he was in Memphis. He was speaking to the, uh, I think it was a, the, the, the Mason Temple. It's a Church of Christ. And, um, he gave, a, he gave a tremendous speech there. And this is, this is what he said. And, and I, I want you to hear this. Uh, recognize that it's a different context, okay? But hear this in light of what every Christian ought to know when it comes to living life and, and knowing that we know the end of the story. He says this. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. But mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he said that far better than I did. And again, I I recognize that there's a different context that he had in mind in speaking of that promised land but it's a great reminder. That, that whole concept is a great reminder for Christians everywhere to say, you know what? I've read Revelation 21 and 22. I've read it. I've seen the promised land. I've seen from the, the mountaintop The end of the story i know what happens jesus died and he rose again and he ascended to the father and he's coming back and when he does he's gathering his people together a new heaven a new earth no more tears god's presence the people of god with their maker the river of life the tree of life i know how it ends what have i got to be afraid of i have hope And so back to the point of Paul's thanksgiving. He says, you know what? You have that hope, church. And I thank God for giving you that hope. Only God could give you the knowledge of the gospel. Only God could give you the confidence of that hope. But, the, but the, the, the clear implication is this, church, keep praying for one another. What you hope for shapes what you live for. You want to be a people who have, are known for works of faith. You want to be a people who are known for labors of love. You need to be a people who have hope. Jesus is coming back. We're confident of that. Nothing can separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus.